As we continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we are um, in the first chapter at verse 21, verse 21 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. They, Jesus and his newly called disciples, went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked the spirit. Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing the man and crying with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear God, let us hear this sermon and this word and this story and this charge in a way that each of us needs to hear and in a way that you need us to hear it communally as a church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, so far in our walk through Mark's gospel, elements and darkness and elements of darkness and foreboding have been present, but they've been less emphasized than the energy, the urgency, and the focus of the beginning of Jesus' ministry as God's Son, the Beloved. John the Baptist has appeared in the wilderness and proclaimed, Prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus has been baptized and the voice of God has spoken to him from the clouds in heaven. You are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. Mark has covered the temptation story in two verses, the last of which depicts Jesus being ministered to by the angels. And in one of the warmest stories of the Bible that we saw last week, Jesus has walked along the shores of Galilee And called out first to Simon and Andrew and then to James and John, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately, both sets of these brothers have left their fishing boats, boats to follow Jesus. The sheer warmth of this last scene calls to mind for me the closing words of Albert Schweitzer's quest for the historical Jesus. This classic was written in 1906, and it's been held in reverence ever since, including last week when our choir sang an anthem drawn from it. Of Jesus Christ, Schweitzer writes, he comes to us as one unknown, without a name. As of old, by the lakeside, he came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me. 
And he sets us to the tasks which he has to fill for our time. He commands. And to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they will pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Absolutely beautiful. Not much that is dark and foreboding here. When today's story opened, the same positive atmosphere is evident. Jesus and his recently called disciples come to Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, from which the disciples have been called. When the Sabbath comes, Jesus enters the synagogue and teaches. It is likely a small synagogue. Whenever Jesus enters a town or a village, it is his custom to seek out a local synagogue. He is Jewish. That is what, that is his tradition, what he's been raised in. The synagogues are often small, sometimes meeting even in homes, but they're filled with faithful Jews who've gathered for worship, for study, for the breaking of bread. Doubtless each synagogue in each new village reminds Jesus of the synagogue from home. Much like people walk through the doors of Westminster the first time and often say, this feels like the church from home. Now, I haven't written this into the manuscript, but the fire truck went by at the same time at the 830 service, the same (laughs) point that it did here. just the sounds of the city so now those gathered in this small synagogue are astounded at his teaching for he teaches them as one having authority and not as the scribes Jesus is often asked to teach and his teaching evokes amazement from the people that have gathered. While Mark doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount or many of the parables of Jesus, those things for which he is most famous in his teaching, Mark still depicts his teaching as powerful. It has an authority and an authenticity to it that many local religious leaders, well-intentioned as they are, often lack. As Mark says, Jesus teaches as one with authority. He is welcomed and recognized in this way. From time to time, as you might imagine, I've read memoirs of people who have spent their life teaching and preaching in the church. The warmest and most beautiful account I've encountered in such reading is the last few paragraphs that the Reverend Gardner C. Taylor wrote to the Beecher lectures he gave at Yale Divinity School in 1975 and 76. Taylor was often called the Dean of African American Preachers in our nation. Taylor ended these these lectures, which were given primarily to clergy, with a beautiful description of why he loved 
the preaching ministry of the church. Out of that love, he writes to these clergy, you will not hold me condemned for pressing upon you the privilege of our calling with an experience that occurred early in my ministry. He then tells of a fall day under a gently weeping sky. We laid the body of Deacon William Clapp in its grave. I've never in all these years, he writes, known a person who received the gospel more eagerly and gladly than William Clapp. He was to me what an old Creole preacher in my youth characterized as a member and a friend. I stood with his daughter in the intensive care room of one of New York's hospitals on what proved to be the next to the last day of his life. By then he was comatose, but she told me of how he spoke in his last rational moments of his love of the church and of its time of worship. She said the last thing her father said was, I wish I could hear him preach one more time. Taylor then concludes, It is a great privilege. I believe the very highest privilege on earth to be called to the preaching of the gospel. Teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus experiences that great privilege. He steps into it. That great love. At Capernaum, on the Sea of Galilee, in a synagogue, Jesus is at home. At home. Teaching. Teaching. But the feeling of home is interrupted. In a sudden turn, the atmosphere of the synagogue grows threatening. Just then, Mark says, just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, it is common for churches or synagogues through their normally open doors and desire for welcome to attract people from time to time who can appear troubled, threatening. Every pastor or church office worker has faced at some time or another someone who seems not of sound mind. Someone whose clothes appear to have been on their back unwashed for days or weeks. Someone who cannot control the movements of the body or the sounds that come out of their throat. Churches strive to face the challenge of welcoming people who might be a bit threatening. In recent decades, as you can imagine, this has become harder and harder with fear of violence and mass shootings. But still, by and large, we seek to be welcoming. There was, Mark said, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And the man cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. If this were a play, the theater would be absolutely silent. 
Children would cover their ears. Adults would lower their eyes, take hold of the hand of the one with whom they might have come. But contrary to what we see of Jesus at other times, Jesus does not get up and walk over and touch the man. He doesn't tell him to rise. He doesn't tell him his sins are forgiven. He doesn't tell him his faith has made him well. Rather, Jesus speaks not to the man, but to the unclean spirit that is within the man. Speaking a word of rebuke, Jesus says, be silent, come out of him. And as Mark writes, the unclean spirit, throwing the man into convulsions and crying with a loud voice, comes out of the man. As the unclean spirit breathes his last, the traumatized people in the synagogue slowly recover their senses. What is this, they say? What is this, they say in amazement? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now I am aware that when we hear stories from the Bible of things like exorcisms, spirits clean or unclean, we might think that we're traveling back to the world of comic books or fantasy or movies where the forces of good battle the forces of evil. We might even fashion ourselves a bit too sophisticated to put much stock in literal demons. They seem a bit primitive to us, a bit beneath our dignity. They don't fit the highbrow nature of our worship, the educated level of most of us who come. But Fred Craddock, a contemporary of Gardner Taylor's, writes, In the culture in which Jesus lives, demons were almost on every corner. They were regarded as crippling and evil forces attacking body, mind, or spirit. They were many. They were organized under the power of Satan. They inhabited the air above, the earth, and the abyss. Their intent was to thwart, to sabotage the will of God that was at work in the world for life and good. I frankly don't care what you or we call this crippling and evil force. You can call it demons. You can call it the power of evil. You can call it evil spirits. You can call it Satan. You can call it Darth Vader or the Joker or Hannibal Lecter or Iago or Lady Macbeth or Raskolnikov or Nurse Ratched. I don't care what nomenclature we give to the power of evil. But the more names evil has, the greater is our common understanding of the reality of its power. Vocabulary cards mean little when compared to the reality which our nomenclature names. Now, despite its drama, this passage is less actually about the exorcism Jesus enacts than the teaching which fills the air. 
The episode begins with people amazed at Jesus' teaching, and it ends with those who witnesses the exorcism amazed not about the dramatic deed that he's performed, but about the words he's spoken. What is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority. Even though exorcists were available on almost every street corner in Jesus' day, Jesus is, is an exorcism that is tied to his teaching. And his teaching is ultimately about his identity. You are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. It is Jesus' identity as the unique son of God with us that is both the source of the power that will prevail over evil and is the power itself. A member of a SWAT team may speak a word that leads a captor to release a hostage or a suicide to climb down from the bridge. But the word of teaching that is announced before Jesus' baptism, the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and that is proclaimed by women and disciples following his death and resurrection, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that word, that teaching is the power that prevails over evil. It's not the magic of his exorcism but the power of his teaching that prevails the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the end of his lecture, Gardner Taylor says, again, speaking primarily to ministers, no preacher has of himself or herself anything of real significance to say to anyone who is, the, who is within view of the swelling of the Jordan a beautiful description of death. But there is a gospel, Taylor says, and you are privileged and summoned to declare it. It can stand people on their feet for the living of their days. And it may steady some poor pilgrim feeling the spray of the Jordan misting in the face who just might thank God as they crossed the river Jordan that he made you a preacher. Good people of Westminster Presbyterian Church, there is a gospel. And we, all of us, are privileged to be summoned to declare it. The we is those of us who prepare and preach, to be sure. The we is those of us who sing and play our instruments to the pleasure and glory of God with equal preparation. But the we is also those of us who welcome children and families and figure out how to preach and teach and nurture and form them. The we is also those of us who listen and respond, who nod and dab our eyes, who laugh and clap, who offer our time and talent. 
The we is those of us who provide a cup of cool water to the parched throat of a stranger, the least, the last, and the lost. And the we is those of up those of us who help build the congregation as a community of seekers and believers. As an institution which can take its place alongside other institutions in the community. And as a building in which the gospel is taught and declared during hours of worship. A building which is filled with people and activities most hours, most days. And a building through which in those rare moments which it is, in which it is quiet and unoccupied stands as a silent witness to the gospel at all times. There is a gospel and we, all of us, are privileged to be summoned to declare it. Amen.